You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The show before the show is on the road once more. The 32nd episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. How, how is Arizona? It is lovely. You are in Arizona. It is lovely. I'm hoping that everybody will get some gnat sound here uh, behind the uh, behind the old mic. Let's see if we can get a, a pitch call in here real quick. No, it was ball four to Casey Gillespie of the Tampa Bay. Uh. Um, it is. Uh, yeah, I'm hanging out at Sloan Park, the home of the Chicago Cubs and the uh, Arizona Fall League home of the Mesa Solar Sox, who are really, really struggling in this AFL season. They are currently, as of the recording of this broadcast, down eight to one to the Salt River Rafters. Mesa is four and 14 on the season this year and pitching staff has really struggled. But uh, Ballpark's awesome. Arizona Fall League, very cool. This is my third day here, uh, and so getting a chance to check out this game, albeit they've got night games coming up Thursday and Friday here in Arizona, and then Saturday is the Fall Stars game uh, where we've got rosters named for that. We'll discuss a little bit, and uh, the AFL, very, very cool. Such a relaxed environment. Um, Got a chance yesterday as I'm going to catch a – Oh man! Oh. They're trying to get in a sound here. That was perfect. I feel like I saw that happen. I, I, <laughs> you said I'm, I feel like I'm going to catch it, and then smack. That was Kale Brockmeyer, by the way. Kale Brockmeyer makes an appearance in the podcast. See, there you go. Good work. Nice work there, Kale. Um, yeah, almost killed me with that. It was very close. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of up first base ish side at uh, in the press box here in Mesa, and this ballpark is awesome. Sam, if you get a chance to come down here next year um, to Arizona or or if you're headed to Florida, I know the Florida parks are really cool. I haven't been there for spring training yet, but this is the newest one here in Arizona, the the spring training home of the Cubs, and Sloan Park is gorgeous. Yeah, I'm going to try to make it down to Florida this year for spring training, but uh, AFL is definitely going to be on the list next year if we can plan it out a little earlier. Um, maybe we'll do a, a podcast together. We'll do that. a That'll joint be... podcast. From joint the AFL podcast. Next yeah. Year. That way we can both warn each other when balls that are flying. Sounds... <laughs> We're going to get killed by baseballs flying toward the press box. And then Kale Brockmeyer gets hit with a pitch. So everybody's trying to make appearances here on the 32nd edition of the show before the show. So welcome in. Uh, like I said, I'm Tyler. He's Sam. Uh, we got a ton of stuff coming up for you. AFL related today. We got a ton of stuff coming up. Uh, Milby's related. Uh, Dylan Bundy, the Baltimore Orioles number two prospect will join the show today. Day. Dylan two days ago and by the time you're hearing this three days ago made his first appearance of the Arizona Fall League uh, and first appearance on a competitive mound since the spring battling some injuries obviously uh, shoulder inflammation this year was the culprit yeah Tommy John surgery back in 2013 and it seems like a very very long time ago but Dylan Bundy was a phenom first professional year uh, out of high school he made the big leagues in 2012 drafted in 2011 with the fourth overall pick was that guy for the Baltimore Orioles and has really had a frustrating few seasons but seems like he is in a really good spot mentally he's feeling good we'll hear from Dylan here in just a little while uh, but before we get into that let's talk some Milby Minor League Baseball Awards, uh, we've been releasing stories day after day, rapid fire here over the last week or so. Let's start with uh, the Houston Astros, Sam, because we had some teams win certain things, and then the Astros just won everything else. Uh, So the Astros this week, best farm system, top offensive player, best team, best individual performance. Uh, Just take it away. Just tell us about this Astros system and all these, this massive... uh, 
I guess, like palette of awards that we're shipping to the Houston system. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like I, I'm writing the story now, not as we podcast, but you know, today uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. The story will be out tomorrow. Um, I'm doing the the story on the best farm system. Astros took that running away, both in the staff and fan vote. And then you look up and down the list of what they've won, and it all kind of makes sense. And trying to encapsulate that all together. Um, you know, all those separate stories. Best offensive player was A.J. Reed. You know, as the staff vote, Tyler White was the, the fans vote. So Astros Nation kind of came out for both sides on that one. Uh, breakout prospect, Jacob Nottingham, you know, was the fan vote. He started the year in the Astros system, eventually got moved to the A's. Best team was Fresno Grizzlies, you know, voted by both fans and staff. You go up and down the list that – you know, Fisher drives in 12 in debut, Derek Fisher, the Astros prospect, you know, in his Lancaster debut. That was our best performance of the year, best individual performance. So it, it's one of those things where you have to wait for the die to kind of be cast. And there's a lot of things we did, we talked about this year, and the Astros system was certainly one of them. But now that we're having the opportunity to sit back and kind of write these, you know, year-end pieces, you're kind of realizing, A, you know, like we always said, it was the year of the prospect, but B, this was really the year of the Astro system. You're talking about a system that led all major league organizations and well, their minor league affiliates had the highest winning percentage among all major minor league affiliates collectively. Um, they ha- they graduated Carlos Correa, who's now one of the most exciting players in the major leagues. Lance McCullers is right there. You've got you know all these guys right behind them. They, you, you remember how much talent they traded away between Brett Phillips and Domingo Santana. And like I said, Jacob Nottingham, Daniel Magnan. Uh, and yet it continues to get stronger. They had you know, three really, really good draft picks this year. They really worked that system well, getting Alex Bregman, uh, Kyle Tucker, and Daz Cameron. Um, and you, know, you just see it almost like a conveyor belt of talent. It just can, you, know, you put it on one end and it's slowly carrying its way towards the majors. And uh, in the piece I wrote about the farm system, as everybody will recall, a couple of years ago, actually last year, uh, Sports Illustrated, known for its cover curses, put George Springer on, on the cover. And uh, they had a story on the inside about the Astro system and how they were changing things since Jeff Lunau got there. That was the infamous it, 2017 World Series Champions cover story. Exactly. And that that's that's what I'm talking about in terms of it said 2017 World Series right. Champions. And everybody's like, that's... That can't possibly happen. We've seen what the Astros are. You know, they, they putting something like that on there seems out of the question. Remember the Taylor it, Swift tweet? The uh, Astros tweeted at the end of the 2014 right. season. Over the offseason, they tweeted Taylor Swift's uh, concert date at Minute Maid Park would be subject to change based on a potential Astros playoff appearance. That tweet was mocked mercilessly that went viral from people who are like look at the astros over here idiots and then all of a sudden lo and behold they had to move that concert because they were playing in the playoffs at minute Maid park right and that's the thing i'm writing about in the farm system it's like 2017 almost could have been 2015 you know you forget how close they were to eliminating yes exactly nobody pushed the royals as far as the astros did Right. They what were they? 6 outs away. Yeah. Yeah. I know I think 4 outs away. The Royals that rally in game what was that? Game 4. Most yeah. of that damage came with 2 outs for the Royals. Right, exactly. So it was, they came so close to the ALCS and then you can dream on what could happen there. 
And then you just look at the system and how stocked it was this year and how, you know, these are not just good guys in the minor leagues. We're talking about like Tyler White, who put up really, really good numbers at AAA this year. And you have to dream about what he could potentially be. Um, you know, Mark Appel didn't necessarily have the year everybody was expecting him to have, but he's still s- such a good prospect, has such good stuff that, you know, it's just another guy through the system. And then with the draft they had, I mean, it, it, writing this piece, they, they was just, it was one of those things where you just have so much to draw on. And so, and I was, I was lucky to talk to Jeff Lanau and uh, Alan Rowan in the player development department for the, the Astros. Uh, so if you get a chance, read their comments on that because they, they had a bunch to say on it too. They were very proud of their season. I had a, uh, a conversation with uh, Craig Goldstein from Baseball Prospectus about this the other day. The Astros, we were talking about Jacob Nottingham, and it was kind of almost along the lines exactly what you said, Sam. They, the Astros have so much talent, it's almost like they forget how talented they are because they trade away guys who are like middle of the organization prospects in terms of rankings. And all of a sudden those guys are top prospects in other systems. Somebody like Brett Phillips, Brett Phillips, a good prospect, a very good prospect, but he's, you know, back half back end of the top 10 upper half of the, the middle 10 in top 30 prospect rankings. All of a sudden he goes over to the Brewers. He's their number two prospect. Jacob Nottingham's the same sort of way. Not a top level prospect in the Astro system, a very good prospect, but moves over to another organization, top level guy in that system. That's how good this system is top to bottom for Houston. Yeah, and the thing with Nottingham and Megden in that Scott Casimir trade, when the, the Astros traded those two guys, they had almost built up their profiles so well that they could be traded for a major leaguer. I mean, coming in Nottingham, the reason why the fans voted him uh, the uh, breakout prospect of the year was he hadn't really hit before. He had only hit he hadn't hit higher than 247 at a pair of rookie level stops. So, you know, this is a guy who the Astros, they had the trust in him and they, you know, tried him out this year at Quad Cities and then bumped him up to Lancaster and helped him build his stock so much that he was being traded for a major leaguer. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned with Phillips, Domingo Santana, a guy who hadn't yet put it together in the majors, you know, it strikes out a lot there, but was still a valuable piece of that Fresno team was just a, another very small piece of, uh, of, you know, star studded Astro system. So they, even though they made two fairly big trades, it's a, you look at the system now, it doesn't even look like it made a dent. It's pretty amazing, and the way that that team was just vilified and mocked forever by old-school baseball people, this will never work. This rebuild is a joke. The Astros owe their fans an apology, blah, blah, blah. Look who's laughing now because the Houston Astros, uh, not only do they have one of the most successful systems in minor league baseball, but they also made the postseason far ahead of schedule at the major league level, and that team is only going to get better. Um, One of the teams that really hopes that they are going to be able to follow a road similar to that is the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers have had... A few down seasons, and the talent level in their minor league system hasn't been what it once was, but the Brewers executed a couple of late-season deals and really built themselves up, and we saw uh, not only that influx of talent into their system, but also the continued development of a very, very elite prospect now in Orlando Arcia, who is a guy who really came out of the scene in 2015, a member of the Biloxi Shuckers, now is a top 100 prospect in Major League Baseball. He was a little bit under the radar coming into this year. Uh, Not only that, but the Brewers got another cool honor, and that Biloxi was named the best game of the season with their walk-off victory and their home opener in Biloxi, which came in June. Um, brighter days for Brewers fans ahead too, Sam. Yeah, uh, I got to write up the Arcia piece too, and um, that was a lot of fun to write. Just Again, you have so much going for them. 
Um, the guy won a Rawlings Gold Glove for the for the minor leagues at shortstop, which, as we know, is a a very you know strong defensive position. If guys are very athletic, have a lot of good range, they have to have a good arm. You know, they typically get put at shortstop, and Rawlings found that you know he was the best, uh, or in their eyes, you know, whoever puts those lists together, uh, was the best shortstop in the minor leagues, which is very high praise. Um, but his bat, you know, took a jump this year. He had a 307, 347, 453, you know, slash line. Had some struggles in the middle of the year because what happened was he came in. He spent last year, or last winter, excuse me, in the Venezuelan league back home. Was playing with his brother Oswaldo, who's in the twin system. Um, and you know, he uh, he really held his own there. You know, he was playing as a 20 year old. Um, I included in my story. You know, his his manager now at Biloxi. Um, Faced him, you know, in the round robin tournament, and he went up against Freddie Garcia, laced a three run double, and Carlos Subero, who I know you talked to for the game story, uh, joked that that's when he got fired from the Venezuelan league. <laughs> Orlando Garcia was the guy who did it. Um, so that, you know, this is a guy who really took a jump. He he was going up against advanced competition, you know, from the Venezuelan league coming into Double A, playing most of the year as a twenty year old. Um, saw his homers jump from four last year in the FSL to eight this year. Hit twenty, or excuse me, hit thirty-seven doubles. Um, so showed plenty of pop to go with that uh, really, really strong defensive work. Um, I think I was saying before he had some struggles in the middle of the year because a lot of guys came up to him, saw he was you know a six-foot scrawny shortstop young guy. We're just going to pump fastballs by him. Once they realized they couldn't do that anymore, he's a little bit of a free swinger. So if he's going to sit dead right on the fastball, he can hit it. Uh, once they realized that, they were trying to throw him some more breaking stuff around June, July, and that's when he started to go through a funk. But um, everybody I talked to said he made the necessary adjustments, and that's where everybody really was impressed with him, um, his ability to you know, make those adjust- adjustments against the breaking stuff and still crack 300 at the end of the year um, with some nice pop. So he's now MLB.com's number 12 prospect. I think he started the year at number 88, really made a jump in, in terms of evaluation and you know, everybody say says he has a little bit of that swagger to him too. That he just exudes being a major leaguer. Um, I know when his brother Oswaldo saw him apparently in the playoffs for the Southern League, he went up to the hitting coach for the Biloxi Shuckers and said, "Wow, he's he's a major leaguer now." And everybody's like, "Yeah, but but don't tell him. We don't need him getting any more <laughs> cocky." Um, so hopefully, we haven't done that with giving him the breakout prospect of the year. But he his story is definitely a fun one and. You know, given the shortstop renaissance kind of going on in the majors right now with Correa and Lindor and uh, Corey Seager, Marcia um, kind of maybe may slightly second tier there, but he's certainly going to be part of that that group going forward. At least everybody in the Brewers system hopes so. Uh, Biloxi is a, a really – I mean, that team obviously had the strangest 2015. Started the year with 54 games on the road, uh, was able to open up their ballpark in June, but the ballpark wasn't fully finished in June, so they were still kind of you know, playing at home but not playing at a finished-off ballpark, um, the final product of what it will be. But that team, despite 54 games straight on the road to open the season, they won their first half-division title, make it into the playoffs, uh, a very, very loyal and – and really excited fan base gets behind them as they make a run at the Southern League Championship Series. And I got to write the Game of the Year story, which was their uh, walk-off victory in the home opener, which came June 6th uh, at MGM Park. And the cool thing about it was just hearing the way that the the members of that team – 
describe that fan base because it obviously was a very exciting start to the season, but it was a very exhausting start to the season as well for that team. They played well, but you're on the road for two straight months. That's going to take a toll no matter what. Uh, but to be able to get home and find out that not only were they getting home to one of the coolest ballparks uh, in the country, but you're getting home to a city that has a fan base that has really, really followed you. That was one I talked with Chris Harris, the radio voice of the Shuckers, because I wanted to get his perspective as not just a, a member of the team that had to be on that road trip, but also a member of the front office that had to be on that road trip. It's really unique for a guy in his position. He's, you know, players not to take anything away from what they do, but the routine of going to the ballpark on the road is really the same. Um, if you're a front office member, he's handling travel arrangements. He's writing game notes. He's putting together the media guide. He's working the social media accounts. Uh, he's doing all that stuff. And, oh, by the way, he's going to the ballpark and calling games, so he's there every night for that as well. So his take was a really unique and interesting one. And he said when they got home, the Shuckers figured out, man, this town has been following this team the entire season. I mean, they got back. It's a sellout crowd, obviously, on opening night. There was a parade pregame where they had kids with signs that had players' names on it and stuff. Just stuff that doesn't really happen in the minor leagues that much. And that was really cool to hear the way that Biloxi embraced that team. So the Shuckers get home. They give up an early lead. Mobile takes the lead. Biloxi comes back, ties that game. Game gets sent into extra innings. Mobile takes the lead again in the top half of the 14th. And then Biloxi comes back to walk it off. And uh, it just seemed like it had played itself perfectly. Uh, Carlos Ibero, who you, you mentioned there, Sam, the manager, that Biloxi team told me he'd been in player development for 17 years and that's a moment that's unlike basically anything he'd ever seen before and his thought was you know they take the lead in the top of the 14th but his initial thought was man this would be a perfect script if we were able to walk it off that's his quote so that entire team I mean that kind of shows you the way they had played in the first half was it wasn't oh man I can't believe we're going to open this ballpark after this road trip and all of a sudden we're going to you know drop our first one here it was no we're going to walk this thing off in 14 innings and just really really cool to see the way that that team was embraced by their fan base and Carlos said he thinks a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, Katrina went through there 10 years ago and devastated right. Biloxi yep. as it did so much of that region. And now they get to take ownership in that team. I mean, they've got this ballpark. They've got something that they can rally around as a community. And that was really, really cool to hear. Yeah. You, you had a neat quote from Chris Harrison there about how about 6,000 people were there for the game and yes. 5,700 of them stayed until the 14th inning because they had waited so long to have a team. Now that they were there, they weren't going to leave. <laughs> right, exactly. What was another five innings? They didn't care. Yeah, you know, so that that those little details is what I kind of took away from this is just, you know, how much that team did mean to that area. Um, and I know from my own conversations with Carlos Vero, they were saying how much, you know, they took it as a challenge, that road trip. Um, and, you know, it, it, you could either use it as an excuse or an opportunity they used an opportunity to play really well, and then this game was kind of their reward for all of that. So I, uh, that, I, I had the mic turned off just now, but I just want you to know that I almost got killed by another foul ball. Oh. Very disappointed to have had the mic turned off. Okay. Unbelievable. We got the play LJ Mazzilli, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> LJ Mazzilli. So there's another name we're doing on the podcast. But, yeah, really cool. I mean, it was a crazy season, but like Chris Harris said – he kind of looks at it as 2015 is the soft opening for Biloxi. 2016 is the grand opening. And even though, you know, as he and I think everybody else on that team would attest, you don't want to go through that again, at least you'll have those stories to tell for the rest of your life. You know, you got to see Orlando RC in his breakout year. You got to be a part of that road trip. You got to be a part of a, a team winning a division title and making it to the championship series. Really, really cool story there for Biloxi. And 
I think it's a, a testament to, you know, kind of the way that a minor league franchise can invigorate a town like that because Biloxi was coming from a situation in Huntsville where ballpark situation was difficult. Uh, the fan support hadn't been there over the last few years, so they really find themselves in a very, very good spot now. And uh, congratulations to them. Congratulations to Orlando Arcia because just a, a really cool 2015 for them. Uh, and as we segue into our third and final strike of three strikes, uh, the Arizona Fall League is upon us and uh, is about midway through already which is insane fall stars game coming up on saturday already been some pretty interesting storylines to come out of the afl this year uh but the fall stars rosters were announced this week and that game will take place saturday at salt river fields at talking stick it'll be televised on mlb network sam what were some of the guys uh who stood out to you on the the fall stars rosters and and who are some of the people that you're looking forward to seeing this saturday yeah so the way this kind of works for anybody who hasn't heard of the fall stars game before it's kind of almost like a mixture of an all-star game and the futures game. Um, you know, the futures game is where they just throw lots of top prospect talent together, regardless of kind of how the season they're having. Um, this is a little bit of that. I mean, there's, there's certain guys, um, Austin Meadows with the pirates, who's not having necessarily a great AFL year or, you know, season so far, but um, it certainly has that prospect cachet uh, to, you know, you want to see him on the stage. Uh, so, you know, it, kind of keep that in mind a lot. I know a lot of people, when we tweeted out the rosters, were like, where is this guy? He's third and slugging or whatever. And it's, it, it's, it's a mixture of both prospects and guys who are doing really well. So it's a reward for a bunch of different things. But that kind of said, um, I'm excited to see Gary Sanchez in a game like this. I know he's doing really well in the AFL, had a really strong ending to his season in the Yankee system. It's great. And Wilkes-Barre got call it to the Yankees got that literally just a taste like two morsels of a couple games um, but has been performing very very well so far in the AFL um, is leading in home runs so I'll, I'll be interested to see what happens when he goes against really the top arms from the East Division uh, that West Division roster I think is particularly kind of stacked um, mo because they have a lot of Astros guys on there AJ Reed JD Davis uh, Derek Fisher um, and you know, like I said, Gary Sanchez is also on that team. Reese McGuire is the other catcher, friend of the podcast. Uh, and they, uh, you know, you just look down the list. They have my favorite pitcher in this game, which is Alex Reyes uh, of St. Louis, who we've talked about numerous times. The guy just has gas. And, you know, if, in a game like this, they're going to let him dial it up as much as he wants if they do give him the ball. So that'll be exciting. Uh, East Division, um, guy who kind of stands out there is Christian Arroyo. Uh, he was the week three AFL player of the week. Uh, was showing some surprising pop. I know he's hit three homers, I think, in the AFL so far. Uh, for a guy who's a shortstop, hadn't played higher than high A San Jose. Uh, was really holding his own against the advanced competition there. Uh, Dominic Smith is doing very well for the Mets. Um, as we know, you know, had a horrendous first couple of months and then really turned it on towards the end and is bringing that to the AFL, which is exciting. Um, Adam Brett Walker has a chance to just put on a show uh, with his power there. Um, and that also in that outfield could be Clint Frazier and Rami Otapia, uh, you know, two, two guys who I know are top 100 prospects. So both teams have plenty of, you know, prospect talent uh, to get excited about. The good thing is on, it's on TV, so you can check that out for yourself. 
Um, but what about for you, Tyler? Just kind of looking over these, what, what's kind of standing out to you? I agree. I'm really excited to see Alex Reyes. Um, that arm is just something that you hear about. It's kind of the way you heard about Chris Bryant's bat, um, it's the way that people rave about Alex Reyes's arm. And again, the AFL is cool, and the Fall Stars game is extra cool because guys get to work in such short bursts that for somebody like Alex Reyes, who can touch triple digits late into starts, if he's only going one or two innings in an All-Star game, that's a moment to be very electric. You see the same sort of thing in the Major League all-star games from time to time also um but it, that that should be really cool um dj peterson is going to be playing in his second straight fall stars game the uh the mariners number three prospect i'll be interested to see him he's had a much more mature approach this season after being in the afl last year and really struggling a lot better results out of him this year jerkson profar is going to be a member of the uh the west divisions roster which will be cool i mean we've seen obviously what injuries have done to him over the last couple of seasons but still unbelievably talented and not only that he's still only 22 years old that's a crazy thing about profar um aj reed who we noted as our offensive player of the year and you know it just absolutely destroyed baseballs all season long. Um, that's on the west side. On the east side, I uh, obviously am impartial to Rymel Tapia. We have glowed about my love for him many times on this podcast. But I, I really like Sean Manaya. Um, I've gotten a chance to talk to Sean a few times. I talked to him yesterday um, a little bit in Peoria. And just a guy who really seems like he has a very good head on his shoulders as a prospect traded in his first year. I mean, a first-round pick and a guy who all of a sudden you're in a different organization the Oakland Athletics, they're handling you a little bit differently than what the Kansas City Royals were, but he is very at home with where he is. He's working on a slider right now, trying to do some different stuff with that pitch and, and teach it to himself and learn and take his knocks here in the AFL, but he's a member of that roster. I'll be interested to see how he looks in a, a situation like an all-star showcase. And um, and Renato Nunez is another guy who I've really, really liked watching over the few times I've gotten to see him both uh, in spring training earlier this year and here in the AFL somewhat. So there are a lot of talented names on these rosters and uh, really excited to see that showcase because it is a, a very unique all-star event in the AFL. Um, and one of the other notes that we came across in the Arizona Fall League not something that either of us was aware of until yesterday uh, when I was taking in a game in Peoria and texted you and said, pitch counts for 20 seconds in, in minor leagues this year across AA and AAA, right? And you said, yeah, what's up? 15 seconds here in the AFL now. New rule for 2015. Yeah, that just seems – we were talking about this before, but that just seems almost cutting it too close. Um, you, you were at the game yesterday, so you can talk more to it. But 20 seconds is like, okay, you know, if, if you haven't thrown the ball yet, please, please throw the ball. This is taking too long. 15, I know it's only a difference of five seconds, but you, you might be getting to the point where a guy is legitimately rushing a throw. And, you know, when guys are pushing it, you know, just to beat a clock, that could be when injuries happen and that kind of thing. So I know a lot of people uh, were balking at 20 seconds saying that that's too quick. We showed that that wasn't necessarily the case this year. You talk to anybody, that's more than enough time. 15 is cutting it close. Uh, but that's, you know, the AFL is experiment land. So that's that's where they try these. And, you know, maybe they'll decide next year, you know, 20 seconds is fine. Um, that's trying it at 15. But what, what did it look like when you were watching it yesterday? It definitely, I mean, from the, the few AA and AAA games I got to catch this year, whether it was on, uh, well, a lot of them on MILB TV, but whether it was in person, you know, at the AAA level or elsewhere, 20 seconds certainly seemed like it was more than enough. Uh, it was very rare that you saw somebody get down toward five seconds or fewer to throw a pitch. Now, in the AFL, it seems like they've kind of lopped off that lag time, and now it certainly is something that you notice. Um, I haven't seen any pitchers seem 
hurried, let's say. It doesn't feel like guys are worried about 15 seconds, but you do watch, and the the pitch clock will turn on here momentarily. It's out in center field here at Sloan Park, um, and it it is a – a noticeable thing. Brady Dragmire right now from the Toronto Blue Jays is on the hill for the Salt River Raptors. He has to start coming set before that 15-second pitch clock runs out, and he just did with three seconds left on it. So you certainly notice it more. I mean, that's eight seconds on a 20-second pitch clock. So you certainly notice it a lot more with the 15-second clock. I don't think it's really caused many issues, um, but it has a, a little bit more of a tightened-up feel than the 20 seconds that we operated with throughout the AFL last year and in AA and AAA this year yeah so we'll have to ask around just kind of going forward as we do we're doing these notebooks and stuff and we'll talk more about it on the podcast when we get kind of more info on it but see how how guys are reacting i mean uh, like like we said that you know this wasn't a big announcement or anything so this wasn't last year they mlb really got out in front of it and said listen this is what we're doing um you know get excited for quicker games and now they're kind of tweaking it like this and just chopping little bits off um, so we'll have to we'll have to keep an eye on it. One of the interesting things too, I was talking with Dan Atchison, who's one of the media relations guys down here in Arizona, and he said it's really not on pitchers. When you really think about it, it's really more on catchers because they control the flow of the game. You can call for time, you can ask for a new ball, you can go out for a meeting at the mound, whatever it is, and you've got to get the signals in, you've got to get signs sent into a pitcher in order to give them the time to come set and be ready ahead of the time that that pitch clock is going to count down and run out eventually. So that's who it's almost on more than it is on pitchers but it'll certainly I'm going to start talking to guys around here over the next few days just about how it's felt to them um, and if it has been a noticeable difference I know early on the first few games this year there was a game I think on back-to-back days uh, in which a game started with an automatic called strike because a hitter was not ready uh, stepping out of the box between pitches, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's an adjustment period. As you said, Sam, this is the time to try it. I mean, this is the experimentation league where things like this get figured out. If this is too little a time, if it's too much time, as maybe was the case last year with 20 seconds, whatever it is. So um, just kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting little note to the 2015 Arizona Fall League. Um, speaking of that league, one of the uh, – future stars and and almost you could say in his case past stars who already ascended to the big leagues in his short professional career uh dylan bundy is now down in the arizona fall league taking part in this league baltimore orioles number two prospect sort of ravaged by injuries over the last few seasons tommy john surgery in 2013 the year after he had made the big leagues some shoulder issues this year but feeling good feeling healthy seven pitches in his 2015 afl debut a few days ago here in arizona and we'll get a chance to catch up with dylan bundy and how he's feeling about the end of 2015 right now Sitting outside the San Diego Padres Clubhouse in Peoria, Arizona, Arizona Fall League action, and Baltimore Orioles number two prospect Dylan Bundy sits to my left. Dylan, uh, welcome back to the game, man. How did it feel yesterday? No, it felt good. You know, anytime you can throw seven pitches and get three outs, it's a plus, and uh, obviously a success, successful inning, and uh, no pain, so that's a plus. So let's kind of go through, um, you know, what it's been like for you the last couple of seasons. Obviously, fourth overall pick in 2011, made the big leagues in 2012, 2013 Tommy John surgery, something a lot of guys go through, doesn't make it any easier any more fun uh, and then this past season some shoulder inflammation but uh, yesterday you're back on the mound you're in competitive games you're going against really tough lineups I mean going in the AFL is you know like throwing against an all-star team and uh, and seven pitches to get it done um, just to be able to, to finish out 2015 feeling good and being on a mound what does that do for you mentally and confidence wise 
Oh, man, it's a big confidence booster going into the off season and knowing that I'm healthy. So once I leave the fall league, you know, November 20th uh, and go home and I'm healthy, it's, you know, a huge confidence booster for the next season and, you know, heading into spring training. When you uh, have an inning like yesterday, is it almost a bit of a disappointment? I mean, you were so good, you only got seven pitches, didn't go out for the second inning. Is it kind of a tease to only go out there and be out there for, you know, two minutes or however long it took you to be out there? Yeah, everybody's been saying that. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like a you wanted to stay out there longer. But then again, you know, I got three outs and seven pitches. I'll take it. But, uh, yeah, I did. You know, I actually wanted to throw all my pitches, and I only got to throw a fastball slider. So, uh, you know, there's always next time, you know. I'm not going to complain about throwing seven pitches. So uh, it was fun, and uh, I enjoyed it. It's probably the only time in your life that somebody will look at a seven-pitch inning and go, man, that's got to be tough, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Dylan, when you look back at, at this season, I mean, obviously, the way you climbed to the big league so quickly, um, not a lot of guys do that, especially coming out so young and all that. Um, and then the last few years have got to have been frustrating um, just from, you know, the fact that you got to sit around more than, than you're used to, obviously. But are there are there positives that you can take away from the fact that you know now you kind of know what it feels like to be in those circumstances when you get healthy do you feel like you know the mental reps that you have from sitting around watching guys or or being able to learn things off of a mound all that kind of stuff are you able to look at what that'll bring to you now that you feel healthy now that you feel like you know you can go back out there and and be the guy you want to be exactly you know i mean even though i've been hurt the last seems like three years consecutively and pitching here and there a little bit but uh you know, even though I'm in the training room a lot, you know, doing my rehab stuff, I'm still able to go out and watch games and, and even on TV and watch the Orioles and keep up with how they're doing and, and still learn things even though I'm not actually on the field throwing. So, uh, and still get better, you know, I can, I, I improve my hip flexibility. The Orioles wanted me to do that. So, uh, even though my arm was hurt, I was still able to get better in certain areas. How much does that stuff help, too? Because so much of this is interconnected. I mean, the the way that guys study pitching mechanics and stuff now, I mean, you talk about something like hip flexibility, and that, you know, connects to how your back feels after a start, how your shoulder can feel, how all that kind of stuff. What have you learned over the last few years about how to take care of yourself just beyond the arm that is going to benefit you down the road? Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to it to, to be able to feel good every time you go out on the mound. And, and you can ask every starter in the big leagues, they don't always feel their 100% best when uh, they're on the mound because they have 36 starts a year. So uh, you're not always going to feel your best, but you do everything in your power that try to make you feel better. When you you know come into a clubhouse like this and you've got basically an all-star team around you, um, how cool is that experience? I mean, being able to to go in and, and see other guys who are in big spots in their careers and learn from you know not only other pitchers but other pitching coaches, other guys who maybe you wouldn't have an occasion to learn from in your career, and even talking to other hitters, I assume about you know the way they approach certain things, certain counts, certain at bats. What does the AFL do for you in terms of just being able to have that education from everybody? Yeah, I mean, you got guys here from high, low A, high A, double A, and all, all, all the levels in the minor leagues. So, you know, the, all these guys are probably going to be in the big leagues or get there at one point, and, and, you know, you're sitting next to maybe a Hall of Famer. You don't even know it yet. Uh, so it's neat to be able to be on a team that has this much talent and, and be able to pick the brains of other players and other organizations and find out how they do things. And, you know, I'm like, all right, maybe I can think – I might think about doing that or maybe – Take something from one guy and maybe help it help me in my future. When uh, you know you have a, a day like yesterday and you get that under your belt, um, does it feel like now you're kind of back in a rhythm? I mean, obviously you've only got a few weeks left here, but does it feel like a, a miniature version of you know what you were able to experience earlier on this season when you got started in the minors to begin the year, or, or what you had a few years ago when you're going out every five days and it's that same routine? Can you get back into that mentality now that it's only you know three four weeks left here? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I'm going to be throwing every four or five days here. You know, one, two innings. I'm not going to throw as a normal starter would four or five innings because of my injury. But, uh, yeah, being able to get in a routine and being able to be on the field every day, you know, it's fun to be able to get back to that. And I, I got to experience, you know, two months of that in double A. So uh, being here and be able to end the season, you know, healthy and, and uh on the field every day with these guys is going to be special. You mentioned Double A there. You were with Bowie uh, to start the year, and one of the really cool things about that for you is you got to pitch with your brother Bobby, who's been in the organization for a while. Um, and you guys, I mean, he was kind of ahead of you when he started his career, and then obviously you caught up and blew by everybody uh, in your first season. But to be able to be on the same staff and be in the clubhouse, and uh, you were saying a minute ago before we got started, one of the things you thought would have been really cool is if you could have gone deep into a start. You're on an innings limit, but get out there and have have your brother close it out. What was it like being able to be around him on a regular? basis and and do that professionally you know what you guys did growing up yeah it was fun you know we're we're brothers and uh of course we argue and bicker back and forth but uh and we've had our days you know being on the bus and on the field in the locker room every day together you know you would get we butt heads a little bit just because we're brothers and (laughs) and we showed it quite a bit and and Bowie, but we actually got into the same game this year and Bowie, i threw i think three or four innings and he came in and threw two i think so that was pretty cool him being able to come in right after me how cool is that for your family, too? I mean, to be able to watch you guys do this at the double the A level. I mean, one of the most competitive leagues in the minor leagues, and, and to be able to see Bundy Bundy in a box score. Exactly. And my parents, you know, uh, my first year in pro ball, they came out and they got to see both of us because we're only an hour away from each other. And uh, and then like this year, my dad was able to come out and we were on the same team. So it was, it was definitely pretty special. And easier easier on him to be able to come to one place and see us. <laughs> couple more for you, Dylan. I'll get you out of here. Um, you know, I mean, obviously Orioles fans really glommed onto you that first uh, professional year. I mean, you make it to the big leagues in, in that exciting 2012 season for the organization. And for you now, um, you know, being a few years removed from that and still being so young, um, what do you feel like, you know, at this point, can you kind of step back and, and realize that you've still got so much time? I mean, I would imagine that it feels like this has been forever since you've been in, you know, when you were on the mound at, at Oriole Park at Camden Yards and all that kind of stuff. But are you able to still look at that and say, no, I can still contribute to this team for a very long time. I can still be a part of this with this fan base for a very long time. How do you view that now? I mean, still being young and now being, you know, feeling like you're, you're ready to go probably for 2016. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think every baseball player thinks that they're still young because we're little kids out there playing, playing a game that we've played since we were four years old. So uh, I realize I'm 22, even though it doesn't feel like it because the last four years has been hectic. But uh, I mean, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm still young, and I still got a lot of years that I, I'm going to be able to play baseball and, and, and uh, hopefully help out the Orioles, especially next year. Next year's a big year, and uh, you know, see where it goes from there. Got a few more weeks here, and then uh, it's into the off season. You get to kind of, you know, calm down and, and let things uh, relax for a little while before 2016. But when you get headed toward February and all that, what's the biggest thing to to get out of 2015 on a good note? Make sure you feel good going into pitchers and catchers reporting. Yeah, I mean, throwing all my pitches, you know, throwing for strikes, good velo on the fastball, and get out of here healthy and head home and, and have that confidence in the back of my head that, hey, I'm healthy now. I can go into spring training and, and, and you know, help contrib- contribute and uh, try to make that team. Only took like 90 seconds yesterday, but Dylan Bundy back on the mound and, uh, and looking really good. Congratulations on getting back, man, and best of luck the rest of the way. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Got a uh, an interesting topic to cover with our pal Benjamin Hill this week on the latest edition of uh, Checking In With Ben, which is an off-season thing now that takes us in a whole lot of different directions than what we did in-season, talking promos and all that kind of stuff. We've got uh, a varied, wide range of topics and a really interesting one this week. First, Ben, welcome in. How are you? Hey, how are you? Hey. I'm good. I'm good. Um, this is a cool topic that we were kind of talking about uh, off air before we got started. But uh, you've got a story coming up later on this week uh, about an economics professor from Towson University who's written a book on the ways that minor league baseball could be optimized in its affiliation and locations, all that kind of stuff. Tell us about this theory, this idea. Yeah, well, uh, I'm working on a story about it now. It's a uh, professor by the name of Thomas Rhodes who has written a book called The Call-Up to the Majors, A Proximity-Based Approach to the Economics of Minor League Baseball. I actually talked to him way back at the end of June. Um, I met him at a Potomac Nationals game, and uh, he came out to the game to talk to me, and we did the interview, and I've since read the book. Uh, but with so many other, much other stuff going on this season, we kind of pushed it back to now, and I'm writing about it now and going to have his uh, my interview up with him. Um, well, by the time this podcast is live, uh, that story should be on the site. So he's an economics professor, and he's just really interested in this idea of how can you optimize um, minor league baseball, the economics of it, and um, you know the player development side by um, – making sure that the affiliates are as close to each other as possible. And it sounds like a simple concept. Of course you'd want to be close to your affiliate. It minimizes player development costs, and the fans are more likely to care about what's going on because they're going to be that much closer to the major league team and probably be fans of that team. But uh, as you guys know and as most minor league baseball fans know, it's real tough to actually make real sensitive sense of it because there's so many moving uh moving parts in this industry and 160 teams and 150 uh affiliation 160 affiliations and blah 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 but it was interesting to talk to this guy get a sense of a few of the things he proposes and uh even just to get the opportunity to think about this and uh what a um challenging industry this is when it comes to having 160 affiliations player development contracts uh most of them up for renewal constantly every two to four years and trying to make sense of this world and have it work for everyone involved it's uh it's a massive topic. Ben, let's uh, just for people who don't really understand, th- there is, as you noted there, teams have player development contracts with minor league franchises. It's kind of one of the things, if you're outside of minor league baseball, you don't really know how that works. Uh, you know, I mean, if a team switches affiliations, oftentimes the first question that we get from people is, well, what happens to the players? Do they stay with the minor league team or do they go with the next affiliation? It's kind of confusing if you're outside of it. But so if you're a, a major league team, you've got six, seven minor league affiliates. And oftentimes they're far flung across the country. I mean, when you look at certain systems, let's take, for example, one of the really tough ones is the San Francisco Giants because, you know, you're a West Coast team, obviously, and they have teams all over the place. They've got a low A team in the South Atlantic League, the Savannah Sand Nats in Georgia. Uh, then they've got a high A team in San Jose, California. Then you've got your double A team in Richmond, Virginia, and your triple A team in Fresno, California. So you're ping-ponging back across the country for those guys who are climbing that ladder. It's exhausting for them. It's exhausting, as you noted, for player development guys who have to travel and, and be a part of that. So what does this suggest? What does this theory suggest for systems like that to, you know, in a lot of areas, you're hamstrung. I mean, there's only low class A leagues in the Midwest League, the South Atlantic League. They're localized, you know, to the eastern half of the country. Tough for Western teams. Kind of the same way for double A leagues, which are only in, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, the Southeast, and then in the Eastern League as well. Um, how does it compensate for all that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, I mean that's I think the the problem with this of uh, having an ideal proximity for all these affiliations around all of minor league baseball is in this book uh you know Professor Thomas Rhodes he's an econo- he's a, an economist so it's it's a dry read but it's interesting if you like the numbers and you like a real heavy um you know more academic standpoint and he does what is called a Pareto efficient model I think that's how you say it P A R E T O and he comes up through a series of steps and a lot of calculations of what the ideal uh, affiliation would be for every level of play for every major league team um all the way down the line and yes, maybe that would be ideal, but there's so many factors at play. And it's like you just said, especially on the West Coast, it's really difficult to have your affiliates near you because there just aren't that many minor leagues around in which you can do that. Um, if you're on the East Coast, it's easier. You know, the Baltimore Orioles and the Philadelphia Phillies, um, Cleveland Indians are teams that have done that, you know, that clustering and having it around, having their pretty much their whole farm system in, in the close proximity and that's great um you know thomas rhodes in this book tries to make it so there's more possibilities for all of minor league baseball but you can't really change it up that much there's if you're on the west coast and all parts of the midwest pacific northwest you're just not going to have your minor league teams close and it's just a reality doing business so is there any sort of practicality to this book is is there any way it could possibly be used as a roadmap or is it just you know, a nice theory, something somebody wrote in an ivory tower somewhere, you know, it, would any major league organization... Those and elites there. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah. is, it, is this <laughs> going to be practical at all? Yeah, I, I asked him that question, and then he acknowledges that, you know, it, it is a, not solely an academic exercise, but that he's not part of the industry, and that most people working within minor league baseball know these things already. Um, you know, he told me that... Um, you know, he he wants to create models, and he's creating models. Um, you know, where you figure out where every team is located, and you solve the problem of who should affiliate with whom to minimize the aggregate distance for all these teams. And um, so that could help. Um, but I do think, at the end of the day, with the way that everything is spread out, with certain major league teams owning certain other of their affiliates. Um, with the major league teams often wanting to affiliate not just by proximity but also by um, the quality of the facilities of their minor league team. There are so many things to figure out. Um, I would recommend reading the story I'm putting together and, and, and even reading this book because it does give you a top-down top down look at all 160 teams, at all the affiliations. Um, and he does apply an economic perspective, like a true economist perspective, um, and you know deals with concepts like shirking, and um, you know talking about how he likes the tension that exists between major and minor league baseball, and you know being an economist is all about um, you know trying to reconcile tensions, and um, so there's a lot to dig into, and I think people who love the world of minor league baseball could really just find a million thought exercises within this. Um, you know, he talks about the concept of uh, you know, promotion and relegation as is used in European soccer, and I don't think that could ever apply to the minor leagues. But it kind of opens up a rabbit hole, this whole topic of how teams are affiliated, how long those affiliations last, how far away they are from the affiliates. You could just go on and on down this rabbit hole, and it's the off season, so here we are. <laughs> That's one of the best things to do in the offseason. Uh, it sounds like a really interesting uh, concept, and, of course, the story will be up on MILB.com this week. And, uh, you know, promotion and relegation seems like, uh, next thing you know, the Billings Mustangs up in the, the PCL seems like uh, an interesting interesting theory. I like yeah, it. Yeah, that could be a thought process for uh, a podcast coming up. I like it. Let's do that. 
We could draw up a bracket, do something like that. Let's we'll, incorporate like relegating major league teams too. That sounds yeah. like that sounds like fun. We I'd do our own thought process. <laughs> Ben, uh, some big news in the promo world this week. We tabbed the 2015 Minor League Baseball Promotion of the Year. The Milby Award went to the Staten Island Yankees, who, of course, hosted a Game of Thrones night, unlike any Game of Thrones night that we've seen so far in the minors. Uh, you got a chance to talk with Mike Holly from Staten Island about just what all went into that process. And you and I kind of worked in tandem on that story. That was such a cool promotion. I mean, they got George R.R. R. Martin to show up and, and did uh, stuff in tandem, not only with him, but with HBO, uh, with Random House Publishing, gave away copies of one of his other books. There was a wolf there from a wolf sanctuary. What was uh, Staten Island's reaction to this? Because it seems like this is really a building block for them. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've talked about this promotion here and there throughout the season, and you know, we've just written this article, and congrats to Staten Island Yankees. Uh, 2015 Milby for promo of the year. But I do think it means a lot to the Staten Island Yankees specifically, maybe more so than it would mean to your you know, Charleston River Dogs and Brooklyn Cyclones out there. Because Staten Island is not a team that's really been too ambitious with the promotions that quite honestly, you know, as a New York resident, resident I've always been kind of surprised and disappointed at how little they do to kind of tap in at least occasionally to all of New York City and not just Staten Island. Um, so to have a night like this, to have George R.R. Martin in the ball, ballpark meant a ton to them. And it's like Michael Holly told me, um, you know, he said, um, you know, this core group of front office people, we've been together for a couple of years now, and this is important for us to signal that it can be done well, that we can do something as good as anybody else is doing and to build off of it. It's a big win for us to do something of that scale. This award is motivation. It sets a new bar for us to meet every year. And I think that's what's important is this is a New York a team playing in one of the five boroughs in New York City in one of the most exciting you know and diverse markets huge media market and yes you're a Class A short season team you're not going to get attention naturally but you can find ways to break through the clutter and at least a couple times a year do th- something really exciting and special that you know appeals to people all throughout New York City and gets national attention as well. And I think that's important for any team, but especially a team like Staten Island, which does have so much competition by virtue of being in New York City. Yeah, so what do do you think this means for the future of Staten Island promotions and getting people excited? I mean, it it gets a little press here, obviously winning an award, something they can, uh, you know, if if this is something that group can take forward and say we can do things well, you know, what does this mean for the future of the Yankees over there? Well, I just think, you know, it's like, like I was saying, they just want to keep building on it. And, uh, you know, in talking to Michael Holly, he said that they want to, it's a short season, so, you know, just three months, but they want to do one Game of Thrones esque promo uh, a month and, you know, have those, you know, circle those dates on the calendar as soon as the season starts. You know, you have 38 home games in a short season league. You're going to blow out at least three of them, you know, go for the sellout, go for the, uh, you know, the New York City media attention, go for the national attention, you know, have the pop culture tie-ins. I've talked to the team off the record. I know they have some ideas that I'd love to see happen, but I, I don't want to, uh, you know, blow up their spot with that right now. But I, I really hope that this means that Staten Island Yankees are ready to compete on a promotional level the way, you know, the Brooklyn Cyclones have and the way so many other teams have. And quite honestly, the way a team such as they they should, they're in New York City and um, they really need to start taking advantage of where they are and really – because then even if you're not staging Game of Thrones nights, you've exposed that many more people to your product. And why not? You've got a huge population to draw from to get people these games, and you just need to keep spreading the word. You know, Take the ferry over here. 
We got the New York City skyline in the background. This is a great place to spend an evening, see future Yankees today in, a, in an intimate environment. Uh, they got a lot to sell, and I, I think uh, they're on the right track. I will say I went to one of their final home games of the year this year, and it is so easy. I mean, as a, a non-New Yorker, uh, somebody who doesn't live there, it's I think even people who travel you know, or people who aren't necessarily from the city or live in the city would think that's a, a tough thing to do. I'm not going to take the ferry over to Staten Island, catch a baseball game, whatever. It sounds so complicated. It's so easy to get there from Manhattan. It takes you know 30 minutes, however long it is when you're on the ferry. You get a great view of the city, take some pictures, and you – the boat drops you off basically at home plate. Uh, I mean, it's they really do have a lot of assets there to work with. Yeah, absolutely. You get off the ferry and you see signs for trains, buses, and then a baseball. It's really that easy. You just get off the ferry, get into the station, make a right, go out the doors, and then you can see the see the uh, stadium right there. And uh, But when I talk to people in New York City and they say, hey, what do you do? And I try to explain whatever it is that I do do. You know, they hear minor league baseball and they say, oh, like the Brooklyn Cyclones. And no one ever says, oh, like the Staten Island Yankees. Huh. And I feel like the Staten Island Yankees need to get into that conversation in New York City. And uh, all right. So with that kind of complete, and, you know, that's one big part of the offseason. And you'll be kind of completing one other big part of the offseason here this week with your blog series. I know you wanted to finish it uh, before the World Series. The Royals did not oblige. But what do you have? there for to finish up on your uh, on the road series well every week that i'm with you guys i talk about the la- the latest uh, on the road blog post chronicling my ballpark visits it is november the season did o- end o- almost two months ago but by the end of the day tomorrow which at this point will be today the day the podcast comes yeah, out or whatever, whatever. <laughs> this week all my on the road content will be done ben's biz blog 35 stadiums visited over a hundred uh, blog posts, dozens and dozens of MILB.com articles. I'm finally putting a bow on that, and then my offseason will begin. So check it out. Ben's Biz Blog. I'm writing about the Portland Sea Dogs right now. That's where my season ended, and there's so much stuff to dig through and enjoy if you're a minor league baseball fan, or at least I'd like to think there is. Please tell me my efforts have not been in vain. <laughs> It is bensbiz.mlblogs.com. You can follow Ben on Twitter. He is at bensbiz. And, of course, story coming up later on this week about the optimization of minor league affiliations and some uh, some good theories, some good concepts in there, and obviously some stuff that would take a lot of work if it was going to work, but uh, really cool stuff, as always, from our good pal, Benjamin Hill. And, Ben, you're going to take some time off soon. Enjoy it. I will. Thank you. We are uh, in the top of the ninth inning here in Mesa, Arizona, as the Salt River Raptors carry an 8-5 lead over the Mesa Solar Sox. Thanks for joining us here on the 32nd edition of the Minor League Podcast as I you know, give very thinly veiled play-by-play as to what is going on in this game. Like That's been the focus of the episode for some reason. I'm just giving you a score update. Uh, but we are uh, set to wrap this one up. Big thanks to Dylan Bundy. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill. You can follow Ben on Twitter again, of course, at Ben's Biz, and you can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblog blogs.com and uh sam fall stars game saturday we're like it's we're three weeks away from the end of the afl we're just yeah, this we're, podcast will continually be us talking about the fast movage of time yeah. well i think what we have to do is we have to break out the old vcrs i know, like it actually record this game on videotape okay and just play it on that okay constantly over and over i'm totally fine with that is if i remember december and january and february in the northeast last year is very cold and sad and 
So we're we're gonna need to cling to this as long as we can. What was that thing? Arctic blast? Wasn't it an Arctic blast? There was something we heard all was, about last year. There was the Nemo thing. There's the mega storm that came yeah. off everywhere. Like my I have family, you know, in Massachusetts and Boston and it took until I think June until the snow was officially all melted and all that stuff. Awesome. So Yeah, it's nice now in New York, although it's dark early, which I don't like. Yeah, I don't like that at all. But uh like we'll cling all. to this as long as we can. Um yeah, the uh I was also hoping to get down to Arizona and it would be like ninety degrees and it is not. It's like sixties and rain and come on, Arizona. To deal with that, um, I have a very random week coming up. Uh, we're going to be doing our for ever since we started doing the the podcast with Tyler and Sam. I've just gotten to be like a traveling fool, which has been cool. But- yeah, I don't know if you're like <laughs> running away from me or you come here <laughs> enough, which is fine. Like I'm very I'm very happy whenever you. <laughs> So I'll take that. But then you, all of a sudden, like, you're I'm just, just getting increasingly far away. Yeah. First, it was like Grand Junction. Now it's Arizona. Uh, our next edition of the podcast is going to be from Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan, uh, which for uh, the, I'm going to try to explain this, I guess, as quickly and um, seamlessly as possible. There is a pretty large international tournament going on starting next week, uh, four days away from first pitch, actually, for the Premier 12, which is a tournament that the World Baseball Softball Confederation kind of came up with to showcase baseball as a viable option for a return to the Olympic Games in 2020. Um, so this tournament... Dreamed up with the backing of uh, Nippon Professional Baseball, which is the Japanese major league, and it'll be taking place in Taiwan and in Japan from uh, four days from now, November 8th to the 21st, and it'll encapsulate uh, the highest rankings and the highest purses for international baseball this year. Um, and with that, the highest amount of points, which can be distributed uh, in the world rankings uh, through the, the World Baseball Softball Confederation. But the Premier 12 will be the top 12 ranked teams in the world. Japan is number one in those rankings. United States is number two. You can find out more information at WBSC.org. A lot of stuff there on the Premier 12. But I'm going to be heading over to Taipei this weekend. I'll be calling four games next week, um, all of which will be on the WBSC's YouTube channel. I'll have a pair of uh, Team USA games while I'm over there. Really, really good prospects on that team. Brett Phillips is on that team. Uh, Gavin Caccini is on that team. There's a lot of really good talent over there. The Japanese teams and the Korean teams are basically all-star teams that they've comprised from their highest major league uh, rosters. So this is going to be a whole lot of fun. It's, it's an opportunity that came about very randomly and on a super short notice for me, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped for it. Yeah. And first off, as you know, first things first, congratulations. Thanks, pal. Very excited for you. Thank you. That's an incredible opportunity. And one I'm very jealous that you're getting just for the baseball and for the travel. Uh, but I'll tell everybody else what I told you is that, I want you to document this, not quite like Hunter S. Thompson style, okay. like don't do drugs, kids, don't <laughs> do drugs, but like just all sorts of like the what crazy atmosphere that's going to be like. Yeah. And kind of not to steal, you know, Ben's thing, but like kind of like a on the road in Taipei for this Premier 12 tournament, which you know, is supposed to be a big deal. Like, you know, the, we're not sending over complete scrubs over there from the United States, right? sending over some good players. So. I'm really going to be interested to see how that tournament comes together and uh, just what the atmosphere is going to be like because you hear all the stories about 
Asian baseball and what it, what that experience is like. So I'm excited for you, and I'm excited for the rest of us to hear your stories. Thanks, man. I am pumped. It should be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it'll be cool. I, I won't have any games that have the Taiwanese team. Uh, they compete as Chinese Taipei in international competition, if you've ever wondered the difference between those. If you see a Chinese Taipei team in the Olympics or the WBC or whatever it is, that's Taiwan. Uh, they're the number four-ranked team in the world. Um, I won't have any of their games, but I will have Japan and Korea, who obviously will have pretty big contingents uh, for their fan bases. And It's going to be really cool to see the, the different levels of talent on these rosters because uh, from the NPB stars who are going over for the Japanese team, the KBO stars who are going over for the Korean team, and a lot of top prospects coming out on the American team, the Canadian team. Uh, I know Tyler O'Neill, for example, from the Seattle Mariners is on Team Canada. There's a lot of really, really good baseball talent going over there for this tournament, so it should be a ton of fun. And um, I'll get over there. My first broadcast is Wednesday night, uh, local time in Taipei. That is Wednesday morning Eastern time. I believe that'll be a 6 a.m. first pitch your time, Sam. So I will count on you being awake and watching. Yeah, well, it'll be uh, on in my room whether I'm awake, (laughs) but you'll, you'll get my click. That makes you feel better. <laughs> makes you feel fantastic. Just uh, yell in, in, like around like the fourth inning. Just scream for no reason. Sam! Yeah. Sam! We, we're recording episode 33 soon. Um, so that will do it for the 32nd episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. Head on over to iTunes. Give us a rating, a review, a subscription. We are rocketing up the baseball charts over there. I was talking with our, uh, our boss, Brendan, the other day when I was back in the offices about how much we've been climbing on the baseball charts in the iTunes podcast. So go give us more ratings, more reviews, more subscriptions that shoots us up to the top of the list and uh then you can give us um you know all of your feedback podcast at milb.com as well and uh until next week we'll be doing a transoceanic edition of the minor league baseball podcast um enjoy the fall stars game on mlb network and uh sam i'll talk to you from abroad yeah i'll be excited for it well hopefully the uh, message will carry we'll talk to you guys next week Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.